All right, thanks, Greg. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sunday School. We're transitioning this week from our introductory lessons about God to more introductory lessons about God's Word. We've seen thus far that God's Word must be the foundation for our thinking and the tester of all truth claims, especially regarding God's character, but also regarding God's essential nature. God as triune, God as the eternally existent God. You know, we, we use evidences too as we speak with people, but only from a perspective that already knows and presents the Bible as true. God's word must be our foundation. Now, one of the frequently cited reasons from skeptics, people who don't believe the Bible, for dismissing the Bible is that it's just a book written by men. It's just man's opinion. Sure, the Bible's right on some things, but I don't need to pay attention to it because it's just the word of men. Huh. Is that really true? Is the Bible the word of men? Well, because the Bible is our ultimate foundation for truth, let's go to the Bible to understand what the Bible is and how it came to us. This morning, we're going to ask a number of key questions about the Bible and look to answer them. From where did the Bible come? For what is it useful? And how should we study it? As you can see, the title of today's lesson is God's Word Guides Us. Let's pray before we get into our lesson. Our Lord God, I pray that this time would be profitable, that you would help me to be able to explain your word well, give me clarity of understanding, give them clarity of understanding. And God, I pray that we might know you more, enjoy you more, and enjoy your word more. In Jesus' name, amen. As I say, we're chiefly concerned today with where did the Bible come from? And the Bible does answer that question for us. We're going to look at a couple of main passages today. And the first one is 2 Peter 1, verses 19 to 21. So please take your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 to 21. And just a little bit of quick background on this passage. Here we have the Apostle Peter writing, writing to fellow Christians. It's a letter filled with encouragement and warnings for Christians who are experiencing persecution but are threatened by false teachers and mockers. Now, chapter 1 has a lot to say about the Word of God. And at the end of the chapter, Peter is saying something intensely relevant about the Word of God and our subject today. So look at verses 19 to 21 with me. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 to 21. Peter says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All right, so let's observe some details in this shorter section of text. Verse 19 says that believers would do well to pay attention to something. Pay attention to what? The prophetic word. And note what this prophetic word is compared to. It is like a lamp in a dark place. Pay attention to it like a lamp in a dark place. There's a familiar metaphor, right? From what we've already seen. Notice also that the idea of prophecy is repeated several times in this passage, but it's specifically linked to scripture, as we see in verse 20. In essence, Peter says here, it is wise for you Christians to use the scriptures like a lamp in a dark world. Now, why is that? Well, notice the phrase more sure in verse 19. We have a more sure prophetic word. Other translations say more fully confirmed or completely reliable. But there is, there are some options when it comes to understanding this phrase, and we need to pay attention to the immediate context so that we understand it properly. 
If you just look back to verses 16 to 18, and we see the immediate context, Peter's reminding his listeners that the apostles didn't make up what they said about Jesus, but were themselves eyewitnesses of Jesus' unveiled glory, even in the transfiguration. In verse 19, then, Peter's making a qualitative comparison between that eyewitness experience and the Bible. This means that the sentiment from Peter can be translated two different ways. Either the sense is, uh, as it is translated in the New American Standard, the ESV, and the New King James Version, so you can see the scriptures are even more sure because of our firsthand experience as to how what it said came to pass. So our experience confirms the word, and so it's more sure. But you can also take it really the opposite way, as it is in the NIV and the King James Version, which would be like this. Not only should you believe our message about Jesus because we were direct witnesses of him, but even more so because the more sure scriptures proclaimed the same message. So is it the experience makes it more sure, as it is the New American Standard, or Regardless of our experience, we have the more sure prophetic word. In context, it appears the latter sense is preferred. Peter, in this instance, is underscoring the primacy of Scripture. He says you should pay attention to it. Not, and it's not uh, telling them to pay attention to their experience, but the Scripture. And as we've seen in other lessons, the Bible repeatedly affirms its chief authority, even above man's experience. You remember the words of Paul. May God be found true and every man found a liar. But regardless of how you take this specific translation, Peter is certainly emphasizing to his listeners why they should believe and pay attention to the Bible. Now that's one part of this verse, but there's more. Notice that Peter also wants to say something about the origin of scriptures here. Verse 20 starts with, knowing this first of all, referring not to chronology, like this is the first thing you should know, but importance. Here's one of the most important things to know. And he explains what that is in verses 20 to 21. It says two things that scriptures are not. What are they not? Well, first of all, he says they're not private interpretations of divine truth. And they do not originate in man's wills. And notice how exclusive Peter is about these statements. He says no prophecy comes from man's own interpretation. No prophecy has its origin in man. Not one. None. Instead, who moves men to write the prophetic word as, as they do? He says, it's the Holy Spirit. They are moved by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for moved has the idea of carried or borne along. So Peter says, every word of prophecy was the result of the Spirit moving and carrying along each man as he wrote. Now, this is very important. Let's pull together these details that we see into an interpretation of this passage. What is Peter's main idea he wants to communicate to his Christian audience in these verses? You can trust the scriptures to be what guides you like a lamp because it ultimately comes from God, not men. Now, let's make sure we understand this. Did men write the Bible? Well, yes, yes, they did. Were their wills, their desires, and personalities involved in the writing of scriptures? Well, yes, yes, they were. But man is not the origin of the scriptures. Now, man's agency should be obvious from even reading Second Peter. Peter is not simply writing at someone else's dictation, as if it were someone else's style and tone and vocabulary. Now, Peter's using his own. You can see, as you look at Second Peter, you can see his concern, his specific concern expressed for these believers. His will, his intellect, his experience even, as, he, as he's already mentioned in the previous verses, they're all involved and they come through in the writing of the letter. So this is not God writing apart from men, and yet we can't get away from what Peter says. He says, I and the other writers, we are not the ultimate origin of anything that you see in scripture. 
what is or who is the ultimate origin? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God. And this is a very important truth. This is what we call the doctrine of inspiration. Even though God used Peter and his mind and his personality in the writing of Scripture, Peter was moved, carried along, to write exactly what the Spirit wanted Peter to write. It's not that the Spirit gave Peter impressions that Peter then had to interpret. No, God gave him the words of prophecy. God gave him the prophetic word to write, exactly as the Spirit wanted him to write, even though it was totally consistent with what Peter himself desired to write. So from this passage, we can affirm the Bible was written by men, but only in the sense that these men were instruments of God who was the true writer of the Bible. Now, you're familiar with this truth, but think about it. If God is the writer of the Bible, then that is a very big deal. The one true God, the only God that is, the God who made everything, upholds it, upholds you and me, the God who allowed himself to be incarnated, be murdered on a cross by mankind in order to pay for the sins of his people, that God has written something to us. And it's called the Bible. He used men, but it's God himself speaking. You have a purposeful message from God in your hands. This is an incredibly special message. It's written for you from God. Have you ever thought about that? Now, how we react to this message is one of the most important decisions we make in life. The most important decision. How do you react to God's word? Because God himself is speaking. You must be aware how you respond to God. Let's think through another implication of this truth presented in 2 Peter verses or chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, if the Bible is God himself speaking, how many errors should the Bible contain? If this spirit of God gave Peter and the other writers exactly what God desired for them to write, how many errors should be in the Bible? Well, none. If God is God, he gave him exactly what to say. God can't make a mistake. And God can't lie. There should be no errors in the Bible, in the original writings in the Bible. And this is another important doctrine when we talk about the scriptures. Not only are scriptures inspired, it is also inerrant. We refer to the inerrancy of scriptures, and that just means that the scriptures in the original documents contains no errors. It could never contain any errors because it comes from God. Now, what about copies and translations of the original documents? Could those contain errors? Well, yes. Yes, they could. We will talk next time, though, about how God preserved his word. And even though we only have copies of the original documents today, we can still be sure that we have God's full and accurate word. As a preview, and you maybe have heard of these types of statistics before, but know that for almost 2,000 years, after the writing of the New Testament and the other Old Testament books, rigorous textual comparison, what we call the science of textual criticism, has led the majority of New Testament scholars to conclude that 99.99% of the original manuscripts of the Bible, and remember, those are, those are inerrant, have been reclaimed. 99.99%. And the remaining 0.01%, where there's some uncertainty, do not substantially affect any major Christian doctrine. Again, we'll talk more about that next week in terms of God's preservation. One thing I also want to mention, though, even right now, is more than quoting you numbers, the accuracy, the perfection, the cohesion of the scriptures is something that each one of us can witness for ourselves, can we not? You read through the Bible, 40 different authors writing in various places over a period of 1,600 years, 
And yet the Bible is consistent and agrees with itself, fits together, unanimously proclaims a salvation not by works, which can never reach God's standard of effect, the standard of perfection, but by faith in God's substitute provided to bear our penalty of sinful the penalty of sinful failure and give us his standard of righteousness so that we can be saved from the hot and holy anger of God and delivered to eternal life with God. It's as Jesus said, John 5.39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. There's a consistency. There's a, a perfection in the scriptures that's observable by anyone. And that's because God preserves his word. And that's because God's word is inerrant. And that's because God's word is inspired. So, can a person justifiably dismiss the Bible as merely the word written by men? Peter is pretty clear. No. The Bible itself tells us that it was written by God through men. And thus the Bible is fully accurate and fully authoritative. It is indeed, as Peter says, the word to which we must pay attention, as in a lamp in a dark place. Now, always connected to a discussion of belief in the Bible based on the Bible's own claims is the accusation of circular reasoning. We've talked about this a little bit already in our Sunday school classes. You believe the Bible because it says it's the God's word. You believe it's God's word because it says it's God's word. It's not reasonable for you to do that. Nor is it reasonable for you to use the Bible to persuade others that the Bible is God's word. That's just circular reasoning. You probably remember my answer to this in previous lessons, but let me show you another angle for why we are indeed justified in standing on the Bible to prove the Bible. Standing on the Bible to present the Bible as God's word. And for that, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. So just a couple books before 2 Peter. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20. Now in this context, the writer of the Hebrews is admonishing Jewish Christians not to abandon the faith in, or not to abandon the faith in Christ and go back to Judaism in the face of persecution. And then this passage specifically, the author is speaking about the surety of the Christian's hope, and he uses Abraham as an example. He says, you want to know that your salvation in Christ is secure? That you have the truth? Well, consider Abraham. And, and look at what the author of Hebrews says in verses 13 to 20. Uh, make sure I have the right. Okay, very good. Verse 13. For, the writer says, when God made the promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, of which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to analyze these verses in, in great depth, but notice the, the one key aspect relevant to our question. In God's promise to Abraham, on what does God base his oath? On himself. He swears by himself. Now, at first, this seems unreasonable, since... When you swear, the veracity of the second claim, the, the veracity of what you swear, no, the veracity of what you say depends on the veracity of the second claim. On further examine, or 
How can God say, you know that I'm true because I'm going to swear that I'm true? Is that reasonable? Well, on further rumination, on further examination, it is reasonable because the only way God could swear by something else is if something else were more reliable than him and if something else were more reliable than his own word. But, as the writer points out, this is not the case. God cannot lie and nothing is more reliable than him. Therefore, God cannot swear by anything except himself. To do otherwise would be unfaithful to his own truthfulness, his own essence. And you can see how this principle parallels how we view and use the scriptures. How, how is it that we know about God's will and his decrees? Well, he's told us about those things in his scriptures. And his spirit has made it clear that these are the words of God to us. The spirit testifies to us. Now, if God wrote the Bible, is there any standard greater than the Bible? No. God himself is the standard of truth. And by extension, whatever he writes must be the standard of truth. So if God cannot lie and God wrote the Bible, then what can we conclude about the contents of the Bible? Everything in the Bible is true. And we can stand on it. It is reasonable to use the Bible to make an argument to support the Bible. Because like God who swears by himself, because nothing else is more reliable. So we use the statements of the Bible as supports because there's nothing more reliable than the Bible. God himself wrote it. It alone is inerrant and infallible. And since we have it, it does not make sense for us to swear by other less reliable authorities. Now you may ask, but what do we do then with a person who denies that the Bible is true? He says, oh, don't, don't give me the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. Is it useless to use the Bible with such a person? Well, you can't force him to listen. But we do use the Bible, even with those who say they don't believe it, because the Bible shows reality. We let the Word of God be what it is and do what it does. As Hebrews 4 says, it is the living and active Word, sharp as a double-edged sword, able to pierce between the most intimate divisions and expose the heart. That's what we do. We need to show people, show people their own hearts in the light of God's revealed righteousness in the Bible. We don't pretend that reality is untrue. We present reality as God expresses it in his word. We've seen from Romans 1 and elsewhere that everyone has a basic understanding of the true God, but they suppress that understanding in unrighteousness. In one sense, we do not need to prove God and the Bible to people since they already know in their hearts that it's true. They know about God already, and when they hear their word, they know it's true. But because of man's corrupted mind, and because of his love of sin and his love of idols, they need to be awakened to the truth that they do not want to see. And the way God does that, the means God ordained is through the word and through the explanation and persuasion that's based on the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And truly, the Christian's thinking, as my theology teacher puts it, is not viciously circular, but virtuously circular. That's different than what people con uh, commonly mean when they refer to circular reasoning. To say it is virtuously circular is to say that only the Christian's thinking is truly reasonable because a biblical worldview is both internally and externally consistent. What's that mean? Well, that's the idea that a perspective based on the Bible is consistent with itself, the teaching of Scripture fits together perfectly with itself, and it's consistent with the reality we experience. It makes sense of life. It makes sense of man. It makes sense of the universe in a consistent way. It accurately describes the world. Outside of the Bible, no other system of thought provides a consistent, rational treatment for the world and for what is within us. Every other explanation, every other worldview is actually inconsistent in some sense. Now, these concepts I'm presenting to you, they fall under a form of argument that's commonly referred to as presuppositional apologetics. You've probably heard the term 
or I'm sure you've heard the term apologetics before. That just means a reasoned defense of something. And a presupposition is just another word for an assumption. Something you presuppose, something you assume. And presuppositional apologetics, rather than trying to show the possibility or probability of Christianity being true based on objective treatment of the evidence, the presuppositionalist is straightforward about his presuppositions. He assumes, he does not deny, because it's true, that God exists, God wrote the Bible, and the Bible is true. Presuppositionalist then argues for Christianity from the foundation of the Bible and argues against false worldviews by exposing faulty and self-invalidating presuppositions. That's presuppositional apologetics. Now, that's not the only brand of apologetics. You might not have heard of it. It, it, might, it might sound a little bit strange to you, but we'll, don't worry, we'll be talking more about this kind of reasoning as we go through our course. But one thing that I appreciate about presuppositional apologetics is that it emphasizes what we've been seeing so far in our course, which is the Bible is our foundation for truth. We start with the Bible and we stand on the Bible, which is what the presuppositional apologist does. For now, brands of apologetics aside, don't lose sight of this most important truth. The Bible shows us that it is right and reasonable to seek to persuade others with the Bible, even if they say they don't believe the Bible. Now again, that doesn't mean you can just talk at people and you can not pay attention to what they say, but it does mean that we don't ever, or we should never surrender the truth or just lay it aside. God's word is true. We should not argue as if it isn't or might not be. Especially if we want to ultimately prove to people that they need to see the Bible as the ultimate authority. We can't do that if we appeal to another authority to, to try and prove the authority of the Bible. But anyways, let's return to the subject of the Bible's ultimate origin and for what it was given us. We can't really talk about the inspiration of Scripture or the authorship of Scripture without going to that other key passage on the topic, and that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So take your Bibles and let's turn over there. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. What's the context of this letter? Well, you may remember Paul's in his second imprisonment awaiting execution. He writes one last letter of encouragement and charge to his ministry partner and protege, Timothy. Charges Timothy to be faithful in preaching God's word, declaring God's word. And one way that Paul admonishes and encourages Timothy is, reminding, is by reminding Timothy what the scripture is. And we see that in our verses. Look at these two verses in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Paul writes, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. All right, let's observe these two verses. The main subject of these verses are the scriptures. What is the source of scripture according to this passage? It's God. All scripture is inspired by God, the New American Standard says. This describes the transition, the transmission of the word from God to man. But other English translations are even more informative about this term, inspired. ESV says, breathed out by God. And I be God breathed. Now, you may have heard the Greek term used before, or you may have before heard the Greek term used for inspired by God, and that is theopneustos. Theopneustos. Theos, or theos, meaning God, and pneustos, meaning breathed out. We even have that, that root, new, P-N-E-U, in some English words that have to do with air or breathing. Uh, pneumatic drill is a drill powered by air or gas. Uh, pneumothorax is a hole in the lungs. This has the idea of air or breathing in it. And when Paul describes God's word, he says it is what is breathed out by God. 
It's God's breath. Now, breathing is a very intimate expression for the transition, transmission of God's word. The words of scripture, then, spoken by the apostles and prophets, are the very breath of God. Now, this is very important for us under, for our understanding of the New American Standards use of inspiration, because or inspired, because when we hear the word inspiration or inspired, we might think of how it's commonly used today. We think about art or music being inspired, or, or poetry. Oh, that was just an inspired poem. But this understanding of inspiration isn't accurate for talking about God's word. These writers wrote, as we saw from Second Peter, they wrote exactly God's word. They didn't put their own ideas down based off of promptings from God. These words themselves are God's breath. It's not even that, technically speaking, it's not even that the men were inspired to write God's word. As we've seen, the, the word for inspired means God breathed. So the men are not God breathed. But the word written and spoken by the men, that is God breathed. That is the very breath of God. Now Paul has other things to mention here. He mentions four, four areas in which scripture is profitable. He says it is useful for teaching, that is showing us right doctrine. Useful for reproof, showing us what is wrong. It's useful for correction, showing us the way back to what is right. And it's useful for training in righteousness, showing us how we can consistently practice right behavior. And verse 17 gives us the purpose of our receiving this inspired scripture. It is so every person may be made adequate, which I think is a maybe a misleading term for us. It can also be translated complete or mature. That's why I had a little picture there of a baby growing up into a man. That's what the word does. It makes a person mature, adequate, complete, equipped for every good work, every good work of ministry. So we can paraphrase the passage in this way, in terms of what Paul is communicating to Timothy. Paul says, Timothy, you can trust God's word in the face of persecution and apostasy because it is God's very breath, and it will give you everything you need for ministry. Did you notice, by the way, how similar the context and content of this passage is to what we read in 2 Peter verses 1, 19 to 21? Both are written by authors about to die and giving people their last words and exhortations. Both are written in a context of persecution and apostasy, and they're filled with reminding and warning. And both are exhortations to the audience to remain true to the scriptures and to be motivated to do so by remembering the scripture's divine inspiration. That it is not man's word, but God's word. So then let's let this instruction of these dying apostles ring in our ears. We need to recognize the scriptures for what they are. They are ultimately not the word of men, though men did write them. The scriptures are the word of God and thus carry divine perfection, authority, and instruction. You can trust the scriptures because they are God's words and God's words never fail. You can reason from the scriptures because there's no higher authority than God. But you must pay attention to the scriptures or else, as Peter says, you'll be walking around in the dark or else, as Paul says, you will stay immature and incomplete not ready to fulfill the good works that God has called you to do. If this is the apostle's instruction, and it is, we need to ask ourselves, what is our response to this instruction? Ask yourself, do you regard this word, the Bible, for what it really is? The word of God. Do you treat it as such? Do you value it as such? Do you submit to it as such? Do you read the Bible? Do you study the Bible? Do you care about the Bible? 
This is God's word we're talking about. This is no mere man's word. Of course, I'm not referring to the actual physical book in your hand. I mean, that's just paper and ink. But the words and the meaning within, that's God's word. How do you respond to God's word? Do you love it? Is it precious to you? Do you love God for it? Do you put it into practice? Don't ignore the word of God and expect that God will not care. How you value God's word says a lot about how you value God himself. How you revere God's word says a lot about how you reveal God, revere God himself. Value the scriptures for your own blessing. Ignore it or demean it at your own peril. This is God's word. Now, there are a few other implications based on what we've read today. And one of them is this. If scripture is the word of God, or rather, if scriptures are the words of God, giving the message of God in the way God desired, then what is the right way to study God's word? Well, from what we've seen, this is God's word. We want to uncover God's meaning, not our own. So what way of study does that? Uncover God's meaning, not our own. I think you'll agree that the only appropriate way to study God's word is to take it on its own terms. That is to say, to allow the meaning to come out of the text rather than to try to force meaning into the text. That is to say, we need to exegete the Bible, leading the meaning out, rather than eisegete the Bible, leading the meaning in. You may have heard these terms before, exegesis, eisegesis. Plenty of people can make the Bible say what they want it to say. That's not really letting the Bible talk. That's not really letting God talk. That's just man and his eisegesis talking. Man putting meaning into the Bible, putting his own ideas into the Bible. But we want God to talk. Therefore, we want exegesis of the Bible. We want the meaning to come out. What is exegesis? It's the process of understanding the meaning of Scripture. Exegesis, as a process, is both a science, that is, it, is a, it has objective rules and standards, and an art. It takes skill to apply these, apply the process and the rules correctly and consistently. Exegesis is both a science and an art. Well, how should one exegete? Well, according to proper hermeneutics. Okay, I'm introducing a bunch of technical terms, but these are important terms. What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is a term that refers to principles of interpretation. Hermeneutics equals principles of interpretation. You need to have the right principles for interpreting a text if you're going to exegete it properly. Well, how do you know what the right principles are? Well, in one sense, you use the same principles that you would for any piece of communication that you first discover and you want to understand. For example, if you find a piece of paper with writing taped to your door, you do not stare at this piece of writing blankly, wondering how on earth you're supposed to understand it. No, you approach it as you would any text reading it, and looking for clues within the text for how to understand it. As you learn more about your unknown text, you then can refine your approach according to the text's own stated or implied rules, according to the text's own demonstrated nature. As another example, the rules of interpreting an op-ed piece in a newspaper are different than the rules for interpreting a bank statement. Though many principles, many hermeneutics would overlap in those two pieces of communication. Ultimately, the nature of the text drives how you interpret the text. Therefore, when it comes to the Bible, the approach that best reflects the nature of the Bible and how it was written to man, how it was transmitted to man, is called the historical grammatical hermeneutic. The historical grammatical hermeneutic, sometimes also called the literal hermeneutic or the literal interpretation 
for short. Now notice hermeneutic singular has a slightly different meaning than hermeneutics, plural. A hermeneutic refers to a particular approach or system of hermeneutics, plural. One system or one method of hermeneutics is called a hermeneutic. There are different hermeneutics, but the one that is most appropriate for the biblical text is the historical grammatical hermeneutic. This method, I should clarify, even though it's sometimes called a literal interpretation, does not take everything in the Bible literally, but rather the historical grammatical hermeneutic pays close attention to the words and grammar of a text, as well as the literary and theological and historical context of a text, in order to understand the author's original intent for a text, whether it's prose or poetry. That's key. The historical grammatical hermeneutic is chiefly concerned with recovering, based off of the clues in the text and the context of the text, the author's original intent. In this method, we are asking, what did the original author intend to communicate? What clues has he given in the text to inform us of his intention? And with what historic information did he assume his audience would have been familiar? Now, granted, we can never fully recapture the mind of another person. I can't, each one of you listening now, I can't just observe you and say, I know exactly what you're thinking in every single aspect of your mind. I can't do that. That's impossible. And certainly we couldn't do that with God. We can't read the scriptures and say, I know everything that's in God's mind. But we can sufficiently and adequately understand an author's intent if he is a skilled and purposeful communicator and if he wrote us a perfect communication. And this is exactly what we have in the Bible. So even though we may not have exhaustive understanding of the author's intent, we do have adequate understanding. We can't have adequate understanding because God is a purposeful communicator. He's a skilled communicator, and he wrote us a perfect communication. As we've seen from the text of Scripture itself, it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is authoritative. Thus, we use the historical, grammatical, or literal interpretation of the Bible to exegete, to lead out the meaning of the text that God intended. Another term that is somewhat interchangeable for what a for what I just described, is called the inductive Bible study method. And this is a term that I'll be more commonly referring to in this course. Inductive Bible study method is proper hermeneutics according to the historical grammatical method with an emphasis on asking questions and following a distinct three-step method for understanding any passage of the Bible. Many of you veterans from Answers Bible Curriculum Version 1 will remember these three steps. They're not just featured in the Answers Bible Curriculum, but many, many good publications for interpreting the Bible. They break down the method, the inductive Bible study method, into three steps. Observe, interpret, and apply. What are these? Well, observe, you start by just noticing the various details of the text. The text. Asking questions such as, who's the writer? Who's the audience? Who is speaking in this passage? What words are repeated? What is the tense of the verb? Are there transition words? What did the author say before this? What does he say afterward? You're essentially asking simply, what do I see in the text? You must start with observations, simple observations that cannot be argued. You can't say, ah, that's not in the text. It should be clear. It should be clear to anyone reading that text when you make an observation. You must start with these observations and build your interpretation from it. Because otherwise, if you interpret according to some system of doctrine, some creed, or some other thing, you might actually be misreading the text. You must start with the details of the text, the clues that the author actually gave. And there's so much to observe in every biblical text. You may come to one verse and say, okay, what do I see? And it's just one verse, it's only so many words. How much could there be to observe? Oh, you'd be surprised. There's almost unlimited, maybe that's saying it too strongly, but there's far more to observe in any text than we commonly suspect. Even short sections of scripture, even phrases, they tell us a lot. 
into particular word choices, tenses, context, and we can observe all these things and get a clearer idea of the author's original intent. So our first step is interpret, our second step, our first step is observe, our second step is interpret. Once you've gathered your observations, you look to synthesize the data to make conclusions about the text that are not obvious in the text. You're essentially asking, what does it mean? For example, you might ask, after you've done your observations, what is the main idea of this passage? You might ask, why did the author write this to his audience? What is the structure of the author's argument? Why did he say what he said in the exact way that he said it? Why didn't he say it another way? How does the author's message here fit with other sections of the Bible? What does this passage teach us about God, man, the world, etc.? These are interpretation questions, and these can only be assessed and answered after you've done observations. And the third is apply. And apply in the apply step, you look at the conclusions from your interpretation step and ask, what difference should those conclusions make to you and others in the world today? There will always make a difference. God's word is meant to be put into practice. So we could essentially say that the question in the apply step is, how does it work? It does work. We just want to know how. How does this passage work out in my life? Some good questions to ask in any passage relate to what we see in the Ephesians passage, where we talk about what scripture is useful for. You might ask of a passage, what doctrine does this passage indicate that I need to believe? How does this passage give me a necessary correction or rebuke? What is the correction that I need to make in my life? What do I need to do to get back onto the way that God has for me? How can I integrate what I've learned here into a righteous plan of action so I can be trained in righteousness? God's word is always relevant. It is his purposeful communication to us. There's always something for us to apply. Sometimes we forget or ignore this last step, though, because we're lazy, or because we'd rather just keep doing what we've always done. Oh, I don't need to apply the scriptures. I'm sure I've got everything already squared away. We don't want to get into that line of thinking. Rather, we want to do what James exhorts. We don't want to be mere hearers of the word, but doers. And as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, it's not the ones who hear Jesus' word that are going to be blessed or saved. It's those who put it into practice. They're the wise people who build their house on the rock. So this inductive Bible study method is the method that we'll be using in class. And really, it's the method that's at the heart of any true study of the Bible. When you read the Bible, don't just let the words pass before your eyes, but ask questions according to these three steps. What do I see? What can I, or what does it mean, and how does it work? This method of interpretation flows out from the nature of Scripture itself. It is the inspired word, it is the inerrant word, therefore it needs to be approached in a certain way. And as I say, this is not too different from how we would approach any text. But it is refined by those characteristics of the Bible where we come to understand from the Bible. That this is not just any word, it is God's word. God's word is a great gift to us, but it's also a great responsibility. Let's reap the benefit of God's gift by revering and studying his word appropriately. All right, now, what questions or comments do you have on today's lesson? Anything that you would like clarified or further expanded? Okay. If not, that's totally fine. Or if you think of something later that you'd like to email me about, I'm more than happy to help in any way I can. But that's all for this week. Next week, we're going to come back to that question I raised in part of the lesson. We know that, because the scripture says so, God's word was perfect, without error in the original documents. But how do we know it's still God's word today? Because we don't have the original documents. All we have are the copies. 
Can we trust the copies of God's word? Well, we're going to see next week that we can because God preserves his word. So looking forward to discussing that with you. Let's close in prayer. Our great God, this is a really profound truth, God, that you have given us your word. What a privilege. What a blessing. What a serious reality. You have given your very word to us. Oh, Lord, what you say is so important. God, what you communicated to us must be paid attention to. Not only because you are worthy of that, but because that's for our good. If we want to be blessed, then we will pay attention to your word. God, I pray that people listening today would be paying attention to your word, that they would value your word, that they would seek your word, they would seek your wisdom, which is communicated in your word, just as Proverbs exhorts. With more diligence and with more eagerness than one searches for silver or gold, these words are precious. And Lord, we think back even to Psalm 19 and other other places, God, that talk about just how sweet and valuable your word is. God, forgive us for all, how we have not valued your word. We have ignored it. We have put other things in priority to it. We have explained it away. We have even twisted the meaning of it. God, forgive us for our ignorance and forgive us for our disobedience. But Lord, I pray that by your spirit you be gracious to us so that we can Gain the benefit of your word that you designed us to, that we would truly understand it, that it would impact us in the deepest way, even into our affections, and that it would be put into practice in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would help those listening to be able to study the Bible properly, according to the way you meant, and within the community of believers, so that None of us gets off course in our own interpretation. Lord, I pray that you protect your church. I pray, Lord, that we would love your truth and that you would enable us to understand it. Bless Calvary and the rest of the worship today. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, David. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone. I'll see you next week.